Some of you are returning to tables that you've been sitting at for years uh, with your buddies, and we welcome you right back to your same old seat. Uh, some of you are new today, and we welcome you. We're so glad you're, you're uh, attending Amen today. I hope it's the beginning of a whole year of Bible study uh, with us, if you'll join us. And it doesn't look like we have room, but I tell you, every time by about November, you'll start finding some empty seats. You just bring your friends. Uh, Amen's a great place to be, bring friends because, as you can see, you get your friends at a table and you also uh, have the larger crowd and you get a, you get a breakfast. It's not free, but it's, it's, it's a good price. Uh, look with me at our, our notes, and these come to you every Tuesday morning with the blanks so that you can fill them in. That's just to keep your attention. <laughs> Notice what amen is, and these, I think, are our distinctives. Our, our purpose is to study the Bible so that we may grow into the men God wants us to be and encourage others to do the same. That's the reason we're studying the Bible, not so that we can be better informed sinners, but rather so that we can have our lives changed. And our lives being changed, we then want to be instruments in changing the lives of other people. That's the purpose of Amen. Secondly, notice our method. It's an expositional study of the Bible. Expositional means we actually go through the Scriptures and study what the text itself says. We're expounding a text. Now, there are many legitimate ways to give a speech or to give convey religious knowledge through lectures and discussions and so on, but these are expositions. We're trying to lift out of the Bible what, what God is actually saying through these human authors in very human situations and then applying it to our day in our very human situations. And it takes, as those of you who know who have been studying the Bible for a few years, it takes some uh, effort to do that. Uh, Bible study is hard work, but that's exactly what we intend to do. Uh, obviously, it's just like accounting. You know, figures never lie, but liars figure. Well, the Bible never lies, but preachers do. And so you got to watch out for the preacher. This preacher knows it. Uh, you all have corrected me uh, many times through the years. And God helping me, by the next week, uh, I'll correct myself with your help or apologize. And I've had to do that before, too. So we know the preachers aren't the ones who are infallible. We know the Bible is. So with fallible preachers and fallible listeners, we're going to try to discern what the infallible word says to us. And that's the method that we use. And we, are, we want to hear God's voice in a way that changes our lives. Thirdly, you notice we value the different religious backgrounds of the men who attend Amen. And we enjoy and respect every man's opinion, even if it's wrong. Uh, as well as commend to him the teaching of the Bible. And uh, more than half of you are not from Second Presbyterian Church. And for those of us who are from Second Presbyterian, that's just a lot with the way we like it. You know, you get too many Presbyterians in a room, it starts to stink it up a little bit. So if we can get a few of you who don't have any religious background at all, a few Jewish people, some Catholics, and some Baptists and Methodists, and some others, uh, then it gets really interesting in here. And that doesn't mean that anybody is particularly right over the other. We know there's a truth somewhere, and together we're going to find it. In my case, my mother was a Methodist, my dad was a Baptist, so I did the only reasonable thing a man can do. I married a Presbyterian. And that's how I got here. And most of you, you know, you're, you belong to the denomination because some guy of that denomination pick you up hitchhiking. I mean, that's how you normally join a denomination. I'd like to know, did anybody here go into the library for four weeks and carefully study all of the theological distinctives before you chose your denomination? That's what I thought. 
Uh, we all came into it one way or another, so let's not get our backs up if somebody's denominational background gets dissed every once in a while. Because the Bible, what I found is it doesn't matter what denomination you belong to. If you're listening to the Bible, you're going to get corrected from time to time, beginning with Presbyterians. Um, we have a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters and other groups, that's for sure, and certainly have a lot to learn from the Bible. But having said that, uh, your, whatever your views are, they should be respected at your table. And if they're not, uh, let Lon Magnus know. <laughs> He's a big guy. <laughs> Notice, fourthly, we encourage our students to participate in small groups. doesn't mean you have to. Please don't feel guilty if you don't. But do feel prodded this, this very morning to consider a small group. And if you do that, they sign up with you back there. You can sign up at the table on your way out uh, in a small group. If you don't already have one, uh, please let us know that, and we will, we will suggest to you a group that you could join. Some of you all meet right after Amen while it's fresh on your mind. I think most of the older guys do that, so they won't forget it. Uh, the rest of you, you can meet any time during the week you want to, and we provide, you can see that we provide uh, discussion questions for you. And the value of that is that you're taking the things that we're studying and you get an opportunity to share your personal opinion about it and sometimes the personal ways in which those truths might apply to your life. And if you guys get really close, you can help apply it to each other's lives. That is when you've built the relationships deeply enough, you can actually enter into each other's lives. And we think that's really the best way to learn. So we encourage small groups. If you don't want to join one, uh, that's fine. We love having you in here. And you won't miss anything in here uh, content-wise if you're not in a small group. And then notice <clears throat> we do start and finish promptly. Uh, we started off well, didn't we? We started seven minutes late, something like that. That is very rare. Uh, we had a big breakfast, so we started late this morning normally. I think it's right at uh, 6.30, and we end right at 7.30, which is always a disadvantage for me because it proves to people on Sunday mornings that I could actually end on time if I wanted to. Uh, <laughs> And I've proven that in amen over the years, and it's a dangerous concept to put out there in the public, but it's true. It, it could happen if I wanted it to. And it does here, and there are several reasons for it. Number one, men are like that. Uh, number two, um, you've got businesses and, and jobs to get to. Number three, PDS will run you over if we don't, so that's it. <laughs> Folks, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5 and... We are going to look at two verses. Can you believe that? We're going to spend 40 minutes on two verses. And that won't be the last time either. Uh, but we actually are going to roam all over the place. But we are going to look at these first two verses in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And here's what it says. This is page 1827 on your ESV study Bible. By the way, uh, if you haven't been part of Amen, there are two texts. You've got a text by John Stott on the Sermon on the Mount, which is excellent. And I encourage you to read the section that applies to the text we're going to be studying that Thursday morning ahead of time. Uh, I will be reading it myself. It will enrich all of us if we've taken a look at that. And I don't think it's an extraordinary amount of reading at all because we're taking, uh, you know, the whole uh, semester up through Christmas to deal with the Sermon on the Mount so you can divide it up as a few pages a week. Uh, but secondly... The ESV Study Bible has great notes in it, and it, uh, we'll be talking about doing your daily devotions a, bit, a little bit later this morning, and it's a wonderful text to use. 
Those of you who've been in Amen, that's been our text in the past. And I suggest you get one. And then uh, if you're not real familiar with the Bible, I can call out the page number to you and tell you exactly where we are in that Bible. And I will be referring to those page numbers. So if you want to get an ESV study Bible, how much does it cost? 30 bucks? 20? 25. Okay, oh, do I hear 20? Uh, down the hall in the bookmark, you can, you can get a good price on one. Okay, Matthew 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. You say, wow, there's a really great pair of verses. We should be able to get a lot out of that. Well, you know what? I think we actually will. Now, what we're doing this year <coughs> is looking at the five sermons of Jesus that are in Matthew's gospel. There's a reason we're doing this, and I hope by the end of this 40 minutes together, uh, you understand why it's urgent for us to look at these five messages. But it's kind of fun to think about it. Jesus is preacher. Jesus is very popular preacher. I mean, everywhere he went, crowds thronged around him, including here. If you back up a verse, look at verse 25 in chapter 4. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. I mean, all over the countryside. It'd be like the whole state of Tennessee following around a preacher because he was such a wonderful preacher. So we're going to be looking at Jesus as preacher. Particularly, we're going to be looking at the content of what he was preaching in Matthew's gospel because this is one of Matthew's major intents. Now, what we want to do, first of all, is get the context for Matthew's gospel. What is that gospel all about? How do these sermon f- sermons fit into Matthew's overall purpose in what he was communicating in the gospel? The first thing we want you to do is to just look at the general outline. And you're already there in chapter 4. And if you look on the left-hand side of the page, uh, you'll see verse 17. This is Matthew 4, 17. Look at the first three words, from that time. Leave your finger there because we're coming right back. But turn over to Matthew 16. And in Matthew 16, this is after Peter makes his high confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is page 1855. Matthew 16, 21 What three words do you see from that time? So those words, and this is a typical Matthew technique to use verbal repetition like that to set off his chapter headings. We'll see that even in the sermons that he uses some common language to show us this sermon has ended. And so it's it's a stylistic, literary stylistic technique to show us his divisions. And so you see here, we put, first of all, Jesus' identity is given us in Matthew 1, 4 through 16. And we know from those three words in 4, 17 that the first section just ended. Now, in the first section of Matthew, if you go back to chapter 1, you'll see that he starts off with this long genealogy. And he's showing us primarily that Jesus is the promised son of Abraham that was to come, fulfilling the Abrahamic promise that God will use Abraham to build a mighty nation, a nation that will be blessed in order to bless other nations. And Matthew shows from the very beginning that Jesus was that son of Abraham, and he also shows that Jesus was the son of David. And one of the favorite titles for Jesus Christ, you know, in the New Testament, 
There are over 40 titles for Jesus. But one of the favorite ones for Matthew is Son of David. Why? Because Matthew is presenting Jesus as Messiah and he's presenting him as Jewish Messiah largely to Jewish people. Now, if you read Mark's gospel, it appears as though he's writing primarily to Gentiles. And most scholars think that Mark's gospel was written for the Roman Christians, a church that was founded on a Jewish synagogue, but largely now had Gentiles in it. And you'll find Mark explaining a lot of Hebrew idioms because Romans wouldn't understand it. He even, cha- he even explains the uh, time you know, uh, of Jewish time converting into Roman time. It's, it, clearly, Mark has a Roman audience. But Matthew clearly has a Jewish audience. And the reason I th- say that is from the very beginning, he does a very Jewish thing. He gives us a genealogy. Because everybody knows you've got to belong. We've got to know who your mama was and who your daddy was. And that shows us that you're in the line of promise. So Matthew starts with genealogy. And then this text is the one where in uh, Matthew 1.18, you see the birth of Jesus Christ. And there, what are we told? He's Emmanuel from Isaiah. His name is Jesus, Joshua. And so you have all this richly laden (coughs) Old Testament background that Matthew is appealing to. In Matthew's gospel, we have over 50 references to the Old Testament. It's very clear what Matthew is doing. He's speaking to Jewish people saying, this is Messiah and let me prove it to you from the Old Testament, our Bible itself. And then he takes the Old Testament and applies it to the life of Jesus Christ and shows his Jewish friends this indeed is the Messiah. Now some scholars believe that this gospel was specifically written for the Christians in Antioch of Syria. If you were with us last year when we studied the book of Acts and we got into chapter 11 and then chapter 13, you saw the church of Antioch. It was the springboard for the great commission being performed by the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and Silas and some others throughout Asia and Europe. Antioch was the springboard because it was a very multi-ethnic church. It had Jews and Gentiles in it. And early on, one of the bishops named Ignatius spoke over and over again of how richly the gospel of Matthew had affected his life. And a lot of people think this was written largely for the church in Antioch, which was made up of a good number of Jewish people. So that's the sort of background. The first thing you get is that Matthew is showing the identity of Jesus Christ, son of Abraham, son of David, son of God. When you get to Matthew chapter 2, what do you have there? The story of the Magi. What's Matthew presenting there? He's saying, look, even these pagans, I mean, truly, literally pagan magicians, they even knew that Jesus was special. They came to see Messiah. So the gospel is not only for Jewish people, it's also for Gentiles, that is, This Jewish Messiah is Messiah for the entire world. And then, of course, when you get into chapter (coughs) 3, you're into the baptism of John the Baptist, baptizing Jesus Christ, beginning his ministry. In chapter 4, Jesus is tempted. And then look at chapter 4, verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 23. And you see that after Jesus is baptized now, we're into the second section of uh, 
Matthew's uh Gospel, and this will be on your outlines, Roman numeral 2, Jesus' kingly authority. That's what we have in chapters 4, 17 through 16, 20. But if you'll look at verse 23, and he went throughout all Galilee, look at this, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus, after he's been identified as a true Messiah, we see that he goes out proclaiming. Now, what does he proclaim? Well, very interesting. If you were to look for the most common theme that Jesus teaches about in Matthew's gospel, it's clearly one word, kingdom. The word kingdom appears over 50 times in Matthew's gospel, eight times in the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus comes as king, that is, as Messiah, preaching about the implementation of messianic rule of his royal kingdom. And so what you have then in Matthew's outline is that these uh, next chapters, 4.17 through 16.20, basically show us Jesus' kingly authority as he preaches about the kingdom and about himself as king. And then when we get to the third section of Matthew, we have Jesus' sufferings and triumph. This is chapter 16.21, all the way through the end of the book. And there you're looking largely at the passion narrative of Jesus. And you know, the Gospels are almost a half, almost a half of the Gospels are right around the passion narrative. The sufferings of Jesus, Garden of Gethsemane, everything leading up to it, that last week before the crucifixion, at least a third of every Gospel is passion narrative. And certainly after the high confession of Peter, in chapter 16, from there we're making our way to the cross and the grave. And then, of course, uh, ultimately that grave becomes very empty, doesn't it, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a broad outline of Matthew's gospel. Now, what we want to note is that uh, there are, as I mentioned earlier, there are over 40 titles of Jesus in the New Testament. But, brothers, uh, here what we find in Matthew's gospel is very interesting, or actually in the gospels at large. There's another way in which Jesus is spoken of. One of those 40 ways, which is very dominant, is Jesus as teacher. In fact, in the gospels, 45 times, Jesus is referred to as teacher. And of those 45 times, uh, you'll find uh, a good number of those, probably 20 in Matthew. And 14 times in the Gospels, Jesus is referred to as rabbi. So this Messiah is not just a ruling king. He's actually a professor. He's a teacher. He's a prophet as well as a priest and a king. So teaching is very much part of the messianic strategy. Teaching is very much a part of the takeover of God with his kingdom. Teaching is very much a part of God's big strategy to redeem the world. And Jesus, therefore, comes to us as teacher. Now, that's what's happening in Matthew. And if you look on your outline, I've listed here five, these five sermons. And you'll notice that each of them conclude with when Jesus finished these sayings. For example, look at the end of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 28. What do you read there? And when Jesus finished these sayings, you'll find that kind of phrase at the end of every one of these five sermons. Once again, 
Matthew giving us a chapter marker there and saying this chapter is over. And he intends to show us rhythmically what he's doing. He's, he's suffusing his presentation of Jesus Christ as Messiah with Jesus as preacher and teacher. Now, what are these five sermons and why are they important? Well, the first one, obviously, the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5 through 7 is the first sermon that Matthew records. Now, we don't know for sure whether Jesus on one occasion gave these words and none other or whether Matthew edited, which, of course, the Bible tells us, the whole world couldn't contain the books to tell us everything about Jesus. So the Bible itself is an edited version of history. So did Matthew edit Jesus' preaching? Some scholars suggest that maybe Jesus preached several times and Matthew put snippets together to make up this one 15-minute sermon. And don't you wish your preacher could preach a great sermon that fast? But Jesus, uh, we're not quite sure whether it was one occasion or not. Also, you have a very similar sermon in Luke chapter 6 called the Sermon on the Plain because Jesus was preaching from a level spot and some of the words seem to be identical. But the sermons are not identical. Luke 6 does not include everything that Matthew 5 and 7 has. And scholars will wonder, though, did Luke just give us a different rendition of the same sermon that Matthew's recording? And here's what I would suggest to you. If you were to travel around with me this month and listen to everything I said, oh, how miserable would that be? That'd be a bad month. But if you did that, you would find that I say some similar things in about four or five different places where I go. I may speak about five times a week in different venues. And I'll guarantee you all five of those are not completely fresh information. I'll look and see, I'll say, was anybody here at Amen this morning? No, nobody was here. So I feel safe saying some things at the next thing I go to that I said here because I'm not going to have the same people in that room. So I'm saying lots of things over and over again. If you went with me out of town when I do a missions conference next, next week, next month, You'll hear me say just about every... If you've been an amen, you won't hear one thing new. This is my point. Preachers have a way of using stuff over and over again. Jesus is a preacher. He preached for three years. So you shouldn't expect that everything he said, he said for the first time. So I would suspect that Jesus had some major things he was communicating. The crowds were different on many occasions where he spoke, and you would hear him repeating some of the major themes. As a matter of fact... I suspect what we have from Jesus in the Gospels are the major themes that he probably repeated on several occasions. So we needn't concern ourselves with whether Luke 6 and Matthew 5 through 7 are exactly right or they're off or they're a little bit different, and they are different. Here in Matthew 5, we're told, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Luke says is, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now those are two different uh, phrases. And Jesus probably said them both on two different occasions. So don't get yourself your underwear tied in a knot over those, uh, those technical problems. Let's rather look at the content of what Matthew tells us Jesus was saying on this occasion. Now, the Sermon on the Mount, as you can see from the title of this whole series uh, this fall, is on the ethics of the kingdom. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount is saying... If you enter this kingdom and become a thoughtful, self-conscious, self-avowed citizen of this kingdom, here's what you're going to look like. Here's the way these people live. 
Here's the way they think. Here's the way they speak. So the Sermon on the Mount describes for us the very ethic of a person who is actually in the realm and under the kingship of Jesus Christ. And it is a profound sermon as we shall see during these weeks together. Now, if you turn to Matthew 10, you get Jesus' second sermon. And that sermon is on the mission of the kingdom. The sermon on mission. And Jesus is basically saying those who are in this kingdom and go about announcing the kingdom, they will do it this way. So once again, he's showing what it means to be a messenger of the kingdom. And if you're going to be a communicator of this kingdom, Matthew 10, this is how you're going to do it. Now, what's interesting between Matthew 5 through 7 and Matthew 10 is Matthew 8 and 9. Duh. But let me tell you what's in 8 and 9. 8 and 9 is full of the miraculous works of Jesus Christ. And here's another rhythm you get in Matthew. Word, deed. Word, deed. Word, deed. And that's exactly the way the Christian life is to be lived. Word and deed. Word and deed. They are inseparable. And you'll find that just as Jesus teaches the ethic of the kingdom in Matthew 5 through 7, then he performs the ethic of the kingdom in Matthew 8 and 9. And then he takes up another topic in 10. Now, when we get to Matthew 13, we'll get the third sermon, which is the Sermon on the Kingdom. Specifically in Matthew 13, Jesus is showing us the nature of the kingdom with respect to why is it resisted? Why is it corrupted? In other words, if you look at the church, you see all kinds of sin. And sometimes you wonder if the church is really very much different from the world. And you say, why is this? I thought Jesus was Lord of the church. How can this be? Matthew 13 is going to teach us those things. Jesus teaches us about the nature of the kingdom with parables. There's seven very famous parables in Matthew 13. Now, if we go on to Matthew 18, we come up to the Sermon on Relationships. And here what Jesus is showing us in Matthew 18 If you are in the kingdom, this is how we do relationships. And I want to tell you something. You're going to see, and I'm going to see again myself, that kingdom relationships are managed very differently from worldly relationships, or at least they're supposed to be. And there's a strong contrast between the way we deal with our conflicts within the church and the way the world typically deals with their conflicts. Jesus teaches on this. As a matter of His kingship, He's saying, I want my people under my reign to relate to each other differently. And then we go all the way up to chapters 24 and 25, and here you have the sermon on the eschaton. Eschaton just means in times. And so in chapters 24 and 25, Jesus is answering the question, when will this kingdom be consummated and how will it be consummated? Because we know living in this world that Jesus indeed is Lord, But I tell you what, it sure is a mess around here. So when is this mess going to get cleaned up? And uh, Jesus addresses that question in Matthew 24 and 25. Now, you can see how vital then Jesus' teaching is to the kingdom and to our discipleship. 
Now, let's go all the way to the end of Matthew, and you can turn there with me to the end of Matthew's gospel, to Matthew 28. And here Jesus has been resurrected. He's in Galilee. He's on a mountain there. And he is, of course, presenting himself to over 500 people as resurrected Messiah, King, Lord. And he is preparing to go up into heaven and the ascension. And before he leaves us, he gives what is known as the Great Commission. Now, let's look carefully at the Great Commission in view of Matthew's gospel, Matthew's strategy. The, verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I love that phrase. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, do you see what he says here? He says, I've made you my disciples. Now, I want you, my disciples, to go make disciples. And you say, well, how do we do that? You baptize them. That is, you welcome them into the fellowship of believers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then what do you do? You teach them. What do you teach them? All the things I've commanded you. What did He command you? Five sermons. This is Matthew's point. He's saying to the church in Antioch, and the Holy Spirit is saying to the church of every age, our task relative to other human beings is not to govern them or employ them or just to see that they have good housing and and a, a solid job. Our task primarily as kingdom citizens is to be sure they get discipled that they get trained, that they learn what you've learned and what are the essence, the essential elements that need to be conveyed. Matthew says, well, let me tell you what Jesus did with his disciples. And I'm going to put it in five sermons he gave that will give you the five sermons of basic discipleship that will make you a fundamental disciple and will give you the content that you give to other people. This, brothers, is a discipleship manual. It's the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Hallelujah. So here we are. We are studying what we need to have as disciples, and we're also studying what God wants us to give to others. Because you see, Jesus is not only a teacher. He is a teacher trainer. He's going to teach you, but one of the things He's going to teach you is how to teach. And at the end of the day, When we get to the end of May, basically the challenge is going to be go make disciples. Here's the material and let's get on with it. So we're to be the teachers now. It's an amazing book that Matthew gives us. Now, uh, we've all had favorite teachers uh, at various times in our lives and we could list the things about those teachers that made them special to us. Some of you are in the teaching profession and you're trying to be those special teachers But often doesn't it have to do with great competence and mastery of your area of learning? You know, the great teachers were the ones who gave themselves to their area of study. And normally, those of you in law school, you know that 
that the, the probably the professors that affected you the most were the ones who just had almost a religious devotion to the law. They really loved the law and they studied it because they loved it. And there's something contagious about that. And in every other area of discipline, isn't it true that the person who's teaching it masters the content because in it he sees, he sees a coherent explanation for many things in the universe. And it's really through teaching that discipline, he's teaching life. The other thing that makes a teacher very special to us is because of their personal relationship to us. And sometimes that's the most important thing, isn't it? That as someone who not only masters their content, but they love their students. And they derive their joy not from mastering their topic. They derive their joy from your mastering the topic. And you can sense it. They get excited about your learning. And they enter into your life. They invest in you. Now, these are a couple of the things that make a great teacher. I'm sure that Lee Burns can tell us a lot more things that make a great teacher. But those are some of the things. Well, here you have a master. This is the greatest teacher in the history of the world. And we would all be wise if our task is to be taught and then to teach others. We'd be very wise to learn from him. So Jesus' teaching is phenomenal. Now, let's look at these two verses that we just read a few moments ago. We've got about 15 minutes. Let's use them. First of all, Roman number one, Jesus' teaching is revelatory. Why do I say that? Because in verse one, Matthew says, seeing the crowds and they were great, he went up on the mountain. Now, why did he go up on a mountain? Uh, Some of you have been to the Sea of Galilee and you've been up on that mountain where tradition says that Jesus gave this Sermon on the Mount. And I've been there and actually when we go, I love to teach on the Sermon on the Mount (laughs) right there on that mountain. Why did he go up there? Well, it's a beautiful place. You go up on that mountain and you can see the Sea of Galilee and the little village of Capernaum down below and so on. It's a beautiful place. Certainly we know that Jesus often had to get away from the crowds and had to lift himself out of the villages because it was too crowded and people couldn't hear him. So he went out in the countryside. That would be another reason. But brothers, there's another reason. He went up on a mountain just as he did for the transfiguration because mountains were historically places of revelation. Moses went up what? Mount Sinai. When Elijah was spoken to by the Lord, where was he? On Mount Sinai. When God came in fire and answered Elijah's prayer and consumed the sacrifice as an answer to prayer, where were they? Mount Carmel. Mountains are places where God had historically made himself known. And Jesus is going to make God known to these people through his own personhood and through his teachings. He takes them up on the mountain. When you are listening to Jesus Christ, you will not learn from him properly unless you know the mode of his teaching. And the mode is divine. It it is revelatory. It is infallible. It comes straight from heaven. It comes through the lips of a human being. Jesus was a human being, just like the epistles of Paul come through the lips of a sinful human being. But the Bible, by its very nature, is an oracle of God, and the ultimate author is the deity. So when you're listening to Jesus' sermons and when you're reading the Bible, you must, as one scholar said, you should always read the Bible on your knees. Just recognizing the Bible is the word of the majesty. 
And if you don't listen to it, like, if, you, if you read it just like any ordinary textbook, you're not going to get it. If you stand over the Bible, you're the analyst, you're the critic, you're the filter, you're the judge of whether it's true or not. You're not going to get it. You stand under the Bible. It judges you. It evaluates you. It critiques and corrects you. It encourages you. It's the ultimate authority. And we need to listen to Jesus this way. He went up on the mountain. And believe me, the disciples didn't forget that. That's the reason Matthew mentioned it. Because you remember, Matthew himself was a disciple. He was the tax collector, the hated tax collector, Levi. And he becomes a disciple of Jesus. And he remembers he went up on the mountain. Now, secondly, notice that Jesus' teaching is authoritative. Why do I say that? Because it says, and when he sat down. Well, you say, what does that have to do with authority? Well, here's what it is. Rabbis, when they were going to teach in synagogue, would always sit down. Our teachers stand up, typically. Our preachers stand up unless they have a hip replacement. They stand up behind a pulpit. Not so in Jesus' day. The authoritative teacher sat down. So Jesus goes up on the mountain, the very place of revelation, and he sits down like a rabbi to teach his students. And we need to listen to him the same way because his teaching is authoritative. As a matter of fact, when you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, how does uh, Matthew summarize this whole thing in chapter 7, verse 28? He says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He teaches with authority. Thus, saith the Lord when, when Jesus speaks. That's the way we need to listen to Him. Furthermore, when we get into uh, the Sermon on the Mount on the Christian's relationship to the law of God, Jesus will teach that this is the way we deal with the law of God. He says, you've heard it said of old, and He means the rabbis. You've heard how they teach, but then He says, but I say to you. You've heard the rabbis say that you shouldn't hate anybody except your enemies. I say to you, love your enemies. Now, rabbis never taught that way. Here's the way rabbis always spoke. They would say, well, Torah says this, and then Rabbi Hillel said that, and then Rabbi Shammai said that, and, blah, 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 blah. and they, they sound like a constitutional legal expert. They're giving you all of the court precedents, the judicial precedents, that then lead to their current conclusion. That's what the Supreme Court does. When you read an argument uh, that is made or uh, a, a decision that is rendered by the Supreme Court, you look at all the previous judgments they cite from previous Supreme Courts. That's what rabbis did. Jesus cut through all of that. And he says, you've heard it said by this stream of rabbis, these things, but I say to you. They had never heard teaching like that. Jesus comes revealing the Word of God in an authoritative manner in all of His teaching. So He sits down. Now thirdly, Jesus' teaching is compelling. Look what verse 1 says, And His disciples came to Him. Wow. So when Jesus taught, the disciples came. Now, it's important for us to realize that those who listen to Jesus, I mean really listen to Him, they're like the best students you've ever had in anything you've ever taught. 
they are listening to him very carefully, word for word, and his general uh, thrust of what he's saying. They get the spirit of what he's saying, and they get the details of what he's saying. They study what he's saying, but that's not all. Now, that would make a good student in the classroom. Jesus' students are not just good classroom adherents to his teaching. No, notice that his students are disciples, and there's a difference. They're not just classroom learners. They get up from their desk in the classroom and follow Jesus home. That's the difference. So Jesus is not just a preacher or a professor behind a lectern and he leaves his students in the classroom and he goes his way and they go there. No, they follow him wherever he goes. Notice, if you are a student of Jesus, you are a disciple. That means you follow you actually listen carefully to what he says, spirit and law, and then you begin taking steps in that direction. Let me tell you something else about learning from Jesus. That's the only way you can learn. You actually cannot learn from Jesus if you are only a classroom student. If we don't leave amen and actually go practice what we've just learned, then we are not the learners of Jesus because his learners always follow him. And that's the reason he uses the word disciple because disciples follow. So your strategy, my strategy, is to listen to Jesus, put it into practice, and when I put into practice what he told me today, now I'm ready to hear what he'll tell me tomorrow. If I don't put into practice what he tells me today, I'm not going to even properly hear what he tells me tomorrow. With the measure you use, it's given to you, Jesus says. We'll get to this in in Matthew 13. That the measure by which you put into practice the teaching is the measure by which you will have the capacity to learn more from him. And we all know people who say, boy, they really know the Bible. And they've got heads this big and legs that short. And they're just royal pains in the neck. And they have all this Bible knowledge. That's a very unhealthy way to contemplate learning from Jesus. That is not being a disciple. That's being a classroom student. So notice that his teaching is compelling. It actually moves you from where you were to where he wants you to be. And you start moving in that direction. Fourthly, Jesus' teaching is solemn because Matthew says, and he opened his mouth. You say, why do you say he opened his mouth? You know, only a ventriloquist could do it without opening his mouth. Well, because that's a traditional way of saying something very solemn is getting ready to come out of this person's mouth. He opened his mouth. And so what Jesus says is very solemn. And look, uh, I look around this room. I know a lot of you and, and so many of you have a great sense of humor. And I think that's from God. Uh, I love uh, the American sense of humor. We're very quick to laugh at a lot of things. But um, there are some things that require that we can be solemn about them. There are some things that are not just funny. They're very serious and they're weighty and gravity uh, and grave. And here we go. When we get to Jesus' teaching, these are solemn things. Because you know why? Right now in Egypt and Libya, do you know what we need? Uh, I mean, it wouldn't hurt to have a few Marines, would it? But what we really need are disciples. We need disciples of Jesus in Libya and we need disciples of Jesus in Egypt and that's the big problem. 
You know what we need in Washington, D.C.? Disciples, yeah. You know what we need on Wall Street? Yeah, there too. You know what we need in Memphis? More than anything else, we need real disciples. You know what we need is the head of your home? One disciple. <laughs> that's, what they, that's what your home needs, is a disciple. So it's very important that we hear the solemn words of Jesus Christ and put them into practice. Because notice, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, what we're going to find is that He takes the Word of God, which has already been given in the Old Testament, and He applies it to us in our own generation. He's really conveying to us the Old Testament ethic for the New Testament period. Now, in a certain sense then, He's giving us the interpretation of the law from a Christian perspective. Now, what does the law do? First of all, for purposes of the law, it reveals God's character. So when we're given ethics by Jesus, how we're to walk, He's revealing to us what God is like because we're supposed to imitate God. That's the reason Jesus says at the end of chapter 5 here in the Sermon on the Mount, be ye therefore perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. So He's saying your, your God is perfect, so you're to strive for perfection. You won't get there until glory, but you're to walk toward it. You're to strive for it. That's to be your standard. So it reveals God's character. Secondly, the law establishes societal standards. When Jesus says, you shouldn't even be angry at someone. Well, wouldn't it be nice for us to teach in the public schools? You know, you not only don't bring guns to school and kill each other, you actually learn to love your classmates. Wouldn't that be nice to teach in a civics class? Well, one purpose of the law of God is to give us a foundation which we can communicate to Christian and non-Christian alike. Thirdly, the law leads us to Christ. Why? Because when you deal seriously with the solemn law of God, you find you fall infinitely short of it. And even if you've been at it for a long time, and if I took the most godly man in this room, and if you think you're it, you're not. <laughs> you just self-disqualified right there. But if I took the godliest man in this room, he is infinitely short of what Jesus demands. So whenever you get the law of God, what do you find out? I need a Savior. Praise the Lord. First major step for you is to realize you need help. You need deliverance. You're under the judgment of God because you've fallen short. As Paul says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. All have fallen short. We've fallen short. We need a Savior. And that's one purpose of the law is to show us that we need Him. And then third, uh, fourthly, notice the purpose of the law gives principles of Christian conduct. So if you're in Christ, if you've given Him your life, if the Spirit of God has come into your life and given you new birth, now what the law does for you, it lays down tracks. For the train to go down the tracks, just over here a couple blocks away, you'll notice there have to be tracks and there has to be an engine. The engine is the Holy Spirit in your life, God Himself motivating you to move you. The tracks are the law of God. You need the law of God if you're a believer. When you become a believer, you don't dismiss the law and say, I don't need the law anymore, i got Jesus. No, Jesus sends you back to the law and says, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's what he said. There was an authoritative, revelatory statement by Jesus Christ. If you love me, run your train on these tracks. Keep, keep my commandments. So the commandments become then for us something we love. That's the reason David said, I love thy law, O Lord. Even though as an unconverted man, the law would condemn me. 
as a forgiven man, the law becomes the way in which I can love God. And that's the reason I love the law. It's a revelation of His character and a revelation of His will for my character. And I want to become like Him. So it's just like a son with his father. He wants to become like his dad. And God says, here it is. Now we fall short every moment of the day. But we're grateful to be included in a family that's going in this direction. That's what the law does for us. Now, uh, Jesus' teaching is also practical. This is Roman numeral number five. And uh, let me just read these out and then we'll close. First of all, you'll see in the the outline of the Sermon on the Mount, those first 12 verses are on the believer's character. And that is the Beatitudes. We'll talk about that next week. The believer's character. B, the believer's influence. That is, we're salt and light. So Jesus is showing us in the Sermon on the Mount how we influence the outside world. Thirdly, uh, when we come to verses 17 through 48, it's the believer's righteousness. That is, our conformity to the law. And what we'll see in that section of the Sermon on the Mount, how do you take the Ten Commandments? and actually begin to walk in them in the Christian ethic. There is a way in which we conform to the law that's peculiar to Christians. And then chapter 6, the believer's piety. What part does giving, generous giving, and prayer and fasting have in our lives? We'll see that in chapter 6. In chapter 6, verses 19 through 34, we'll see the believer's ambition. How do you differ in the way you deal with material possessions and money? What is it that you worry about or don't worry about? What difference does it make that you have a father who clothes the grass of the field and feeds the ravens? Will he not clothe and feed you? That is a distinctive of the Christian. Then lastly, the believer's reverence. What does it mean to walk before an awesome God? It has massive influence and implications in our lives. So there you have it. Jesus is is our teacher. We'll look forward to going through his sermons this year. God bless you. We'll see you next week. And remember, students go from the classroom and they, go, they follow Jesus right out of the classroom and they walk with Him and talk with Him and they love Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus, to be our Messiah and to be a teaching Messiah, the best teacher who ever lived and the one who loves His students, who invests in us and who calls us to come alongside Him and to be like Him. Thank You for these men. Please bless their lives. Bless all of us together as we throughout these months seek to encourage one another to be real students, real disciples of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.